I feel like for me, this has been more, more heavily a path of discovering who I actually am than becoming something new. Like that's part of, that's part of the frustration I, I experienced in like a real, you know, when I experienced kind of what, what felt like to me and what appeared to be the people that cared about me the most to be a crisis in my faith. I made it through the morning before I fell apart without warning. I took a deep breath to collect myself. I'll have a good afternoon. I bought a car yesterday. And I'm... Is this oh. the show? I don't know. <laughs> I Hello, everyone. Of it. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us, Joe. Made any big purchases lately? <laughs> yeah. yeah I you look terrible. I feel terrible. <laughs> what uh, is this show doing to you, I don't Joe? Know. We, I have not had a good time since we started the show. <laughs> That's the thing about the afternoon of life. It will really kick you in the pants. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That is true. I mean, our first two episodes that we were supposed to record, I had COVID. And now here we are. Joe's sick. Last week was a mess. Yeah. Drew, get ready. You're next. I'm untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. I'm untouchable and not in the least superstitious. So, <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you got oh. a new car? Yeah, well, new new to me. What'd you do? What'd you what'd you it's go for a, this time? <laughs> it's a it's a gold <laughs> twenty fourteen Dodge Caravan. You so got a van? It's bitching. I've got a Dodge Grand Caravan. <laughs> oh, you oh, went wow. the Grand. You got the Grand. I didn't oh, get I the, got grand. the Grand. The regular mine is old. also like a. I think it's a twenty nineteen or twenty. Yeah, something like that. It's a sturdy car. It looks like. <laughs> This is a this is a deep cut. You have to be familiar with Drew's and my previous work. Pretty familiar to get this. This is just for you. It looks like the can if you just extended it. It's like a tall boy. <laughs> you had a... <laughs> Joe had this car in high school that was a combination of a car and a van. It was called the can. <laughs> the can. Okay, I, remember I get it, it now. <laughs> I remember it quite well. Uh, because the first time that he ever came to my house, like driving himself, he <laughs> ran it into a guardrail on the way home oh, and then just no. kept driving, like That's just right. hit it, kept driving, told me the ne next Sorry. day, he was like, yeah, I ran into a guardrail. <laughs> Nothing went wrong. He was just like, yeah, I just didn't know how to steer really that well. <laughs> So I can't oh, believe you got stuff. a van, man. That's so cool. Yeah. I have too many vans. My that's my wife that's weird. I, yeah, well, we can haul up to fourteen people and some of their things, or less people and more things. We really uh, we're a cargo family. What do you drive, Megan? Do we know that? I rode in your car. I can't remember what it is. Car. Yes, but I I actually got a new car recently too. Is it a so... Dodge? Because this episode could be brought to you in part by. No, I had a Dodge uh, once, and it was a hot mess. Two so. steps behind, always. <laughs> well, you just ruined our promotional piece, too. <laughs> I guess we're not getting Dodge as a sponsor. A Sorry. <laughs> no, I have. I, I now have a Subaru Forester. Nice. So I'm one of those, you know, looking for the most efficient car out there. So That's a ride right there. That's a ride. <laughs> uh so I thought it would be fun to start out today talking about the worst job you've ever had. We're kind of, I feel like our, our first couple of conversations, we've gotten us into this space where we're, you know, kind of talking about like, well, what are we doing here? That, that question has come up, at least for me, multiple times. What are we actually doing here? Set bit that I'd give enough pauses there to communicate that I'm <laughs> I'm asking more than the question on the surface, uh, but I thought it might be a cool icebreaker to hear about the worst job you ever had, the worst That's, way to get a paycheck. It's not even a question for me. I know immediately what that is. What is it? Which is uh, the background to this is I was working. I was in West Virginia working at a church at the time, and that wasn't the worst job ever. Well, it wasn't great. <laughs> 
but um <laughs> i i had a like applied to grad school in maryland and got in and i was gonna you know ready to go um so i gave my my real job notice and everything and they had like already hired somebody else uh and then my employment in maryland fell through and i was you know taking a family and stuff and i just couldn't so i ended up not going to that grad school um and i you know found myself without a job so a friend of mine worked at a screen printing shop um and every time i tell people that they say oh oh my god i did screen printing in high school i love that it's so much fun but that's because you did one Sure, you designed something and you cut out the different pieces and like gave them color layers and then you ran your squeegee over the screen three times to put the different colors on your shirt and you made a beautiful piece of art and you were like, I feel really good about this. I stood there for eight hours a day in a hot ass garage just like stick squeegee stick squeegee stick squeegee <laughs> that's such a good worst. explanation though to say it's like <laughs> like somebody saying i did this craft project at vbs and you're like and it was so fun i loved it it was like yeah well i did vbs forever <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> vacation bible school forever oh that's good <laughs> that's good is that the end that's it that, that was the worst job i ever had i only had it for uh i don't know less than less than two months <laughs> like the second i found something else i was out oh that was long enough yeah yeah megan what was it for you so i don't think i have ever had a job that i hated but so i reflected on on what part of my job that i've hated and and i have to say like the part that i've always hated about my job is paperwork we're, now it's computer work or whatever, but it's the documentation of the job. So mm-hmm. I used to have this quote that I hung up when I worked in the school system. It was a Pearl Bailey quote that said, what the world needs, what the world really needs is more love and less paperwork. <laughs> and that, I mean, I can feel that. I, I just want to go around and love people and nobody make me prove that I did it. And it just doesn't work that way have to especially when you're working in the school system or you're working with a counseling agency or whatever you have to prove that you love some people that day Mm. and it's more effort than my little soul (laughs) likes to put out (laughs) here's this is just a comment about how everybody's different right my wife loves paperwork like in a way that doesn't really make sense and she (laughs) like the way that she sort of markets herself as a, as a professional to herself is I do compassionate paperwork. Oh, <laughs> isn't that interesting? Like I need wow. her to teach me about that. I don't get it. I don't have any <laughs> idea what that means, but like, you know, just loving attention That's to somebody. You don't even, you real can't paperwork. even speak her love language. I, <laughs> I cannot speak the love language of compassionate oh, paperwork. You don't do spreadsheet foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> spreadsheets before you spread the sheet oh no this is not that kind of podcast no, no. Oh. well there you go everyone Sorry she's also really that. into apples so i can just <laughs> that that works you just buy her apples instead um so uh last week whenever we said w- we decided together we're, this is going to be the question this week and uh at the moment i was like i feel like i've loved every job um and then I thought about it more and I realized like, no, actually, I think I've hated most jobs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, some jobs were really fun while I was in them. Yeah. And then in hindsight, I'm like, that was a miserable experience. That was absolutely terrible. And then other jobs were miserable while I was in them. And I look back and I'm like, but there's so many good stories like that was such an exciting and crazy time. Yeah. Um so I guess I have to I got to share two examples because these are the two worst jobs for completely different reasons. Uh, the first one is a little less serious. I was a middle school math teacher uh, in an inner city Richmond school for one semester. <laughs> and I taught it was a. It was an unaccredited uh, public middle school. Did you know that's a thing like I- 
did not. Oh. How do you? I mean, basically, like none of their their testing was. I was teaching math, and because of like no child left behind laws, like you have to teach the curriculum, like you have to you have to teach seventh grade material no matter where they're at. So I was teaching basic pre-algebra uh, and some starting geometry to children who consistently failed uh, addition, subtraction, Jeez. multiplication, division. Uh, and that was like the easiest part of the job, honestly. It was just like, oh, well, I guess we'll just fail everyone all the time. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do, I think. Uh because if you pass them and then they test the way they're going to test, then it's like, well, what did you test then? What were you passing for? Um, half of my students did not speak English. Uh, they were Spanish speaking, like first generation immigrant children uh, who lived in a project housing unit like near the school. Um, and I don't speak Spanish and I did not have a translator. So. They were like <laughs> the people that I would ask, like, what am I supposed to oh, do about this? And they're like, well, they know numbers. Like, <laughs> okay. First of all, this is pre-algebra, so it's not just numbers. Uh, <laughs> second of all, it's a lot of word problems in seventh grade. Uh, and third, I can't just put numbers on the board <laughs> and Ugh. not speak to them. Uh, yeah. it's, it's funny, but it's so sad. It is. It's, it's horrible. Oh, it's in all of those. But I mean, so <laughs> while I was there, it was miserable. I just felt miserable all the time. Like just so stressed out behavior issues were the worst that I could have ever possibly imagined. Um, and I, I have, I mean, I, I still did even in, even in the situation, I would say like, I have a million percent of just patience for that. Like, I don't, I don't get mad because kids are being disrespectful or mean or whatever. It just doesn't, that doesn't bother me in the ways that it does. I have other things that bother me. <laughs> um, but I mean, the things that happened in that classroom, the like chairs being thrown through windows, like doors being slammed so hard that it shatters the glass. That's <laughs> supposed to, yeah. Kids standing up and screaming obscenities at each other, fighting each other. Uh, see yeah. I've had those experiences like and that's interesting that I didn't think about that as a job I hated <laughs> but but I think it's because yeah there was something there there was some per deeper purpose there but yeah there were I've had jobs where I've been miserable but didn't think about hating them that's yeah well I mean glad you brought that up Drew I would come I would come home most days and be like that was wild uh but it wasn't boring, you know, like, <laughs> in the moment, I didn't think of it. It, it was, it was definitely like scary. You kind of like stay keyed up all the time in a way that probably wasn't super healthy for me. And that if I had stuck around longer, it would have started to settle a little bit. You started to get in a, a new normal. Um, but I, I don't, I didn't even keep the job long enough to even get comfortable there so that was one version that you sent version. me a text during that time <clears throat> i think it was like your first week or something when you said um i was i was handing out these worksheets to kids and i handed one to a kid and said here you want a worksheet and he said nah fuck you and i don't know why but i just <laughs> laughed for hours about that text. i know me too i remember that it was so good I'm like thanks man that's actually really helppful i don't have to there's no there's no pretense here i don't have to keep chasing you down and see did you do the work did you uh and they're like 11 yeah that's the thing uh like they're as old as uh, i mean my daughter is almost that old and just to think like the different kind of situation and the different kinds of like what what those kids were like versus most of the kids that i interact with where I live, it's kind of bizarre to think that it's even the same country, not to mention it's like 10 miles away. Uh, so really, um, so anyways, that was a job that was very difficult mm. every day. And then I had another one that probably will, will segue into our conversation today a bit better. Um, and it's maybe just a, a bit more of my story and how I arrived where I'm at right now and how I arrived at the afternoon of my life. The first job that I ever took like outside of my 
home circle. You know, I was hired by a church in uh, like near Marshall University uh, where I went. This was the first place that I moved away from home. But I was, you know, I had family that went to that church and that worked in that church. And so, uh, so the first job that I actually left for real for, I moved to Georgia and I worked for this pastor. Uh, and it was the, it was a great, great moment in my life. Megan and I had been married for like six months at the time. So we were just on this brand new adventure, having a job in a church and nothing else. Like I wasn't going to school anymore. I didn't have any responsibilities and I was getting like a real grown up paycheck, <laughs> which was probably like, who knows? I can't even remember. It was probably $25,000 a year or something <laughs> yeah. like that. But it was like, holy cow, I'm. We are rolling in it now. <laughs> We're going to Chili's twice a week. Uh, but uh, in this church, though, I encountered something that I had never experienced before. It was one of the first times that I really like came into a real moment where I, I thought, okay, I thought we were all on the same page about something here. Like I thought, these there were objectively Christian ideals and things that we're sort of pursuing and we could all agree on. Like if you say you're a Christian, then, you know, you say you're not racist, you're not whatever. And I had this pastor after I had been there for about a year, we had been working with this youth group and we the, the church was actually located in a, a project housing development. It was a white church uh, in a black primarily project housing um, development. And we had kind of like made some inroads, made some connections, and we're seeing a lot of the kids come into the church through that. It's just, I don't know, it's what we thought we were supposed to do. (laughs) Um, This pastor, after we'd been there for a year, calls me into his office and talks through a couple of different things. And then he was like, okay, and by the way, we need to find a way to reduce the number of black kids coming to the church. Uh, It's making the white kids parents uncomfortable um like that's and and he was like and they're the one that pays the tithes and pay our salaries so really these these kids that are coming their families aren't coming with them so there's not really any value in having them in the but and so like i hear this and i'm 21 years old uh i again it's one of those things where you're like I didn't know that was possibly in question. I didn't know that was a thing that like we might not agree on. It's really one of those first experiences where you actually see that you disagree on anything uh, with other Christians, certainly with a pastor. I mean, I had this, this high regard for anybody who had been a pastor. All of the ways that I talk about my upbringing now and talk about my experience in church now are through the lens of how old I am now. When you're 20, you don't even know that like some of these people might be whatever, asshats, or they might be motivated by things that are not the same things that you are motivated by or that you think they should be motivated by. So anyways, that was the other example for me of like a job where I was. And so I went home and I told Megan and like she shocked too. She's like, there's no way he said that. And I'm like, well when I go to give my resignation letter, I would like for you to come with me and I'll have him say it again. <laughs> and we I was going to ask, what did you do? So did you guys resign like then? We resigned. Yeah. Pretty much on the spot. Wow. We walked back in and we were like, I was like, Hey, Megan's here now. I just want to clarify. You want us to reduce the number of black kids in the church because the white people don't want there to be black kids in this church. That's located in a black project. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he said, "Yeah, well, it's just yeah, yeah." Wow, and that was it. And then I worked for evangelical churches for another decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, takes a while. <laughs> Did you get that same messaging at other churches, or was it a little more covert? Well, other people, I, I think outside of this particular situation in South Georgia, uh, that was almost on the Florida line, um, where uh, 
where the civil war is still going strong, I guess. Um, outside of that, they were a lot better at hiding what it was yeah. they were actually doing More and, and how it was they actually thought about things. They wouldn't say things as, as bluntly, not as honestly as that guy did. Like, I, and I've, I've well, you got to appreciate uh, it, right? It's I, at on, least like, for sure. It's clear. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And also years later, I'm looking back and I'm saying like, I mean, cause I saw evidence in him, like the kindness that he displayed towards these kids and the ways that the church did want to try to engage with the project. They just didn't want them coming into their church. And he was like close to retirement and worried that he was going to lose his security and stability in his job. And like, things are complicated. It doesn't make any of it right. When you're 21, it's easy to resign and be like, well, I'm not doing this. Um, and I look back now and I, I wouldn't say that I have sympathy for it, but I do see it a little bit differently. Um, but to your point, Joe, I mean, the thing that I would have to say I appreciate is somebody actually saying, nope, this is how I'm making this decision. And if that means you resign, then I guess that's okay. Cause that's fine by me. Yeah. Um, I mean, at, at 21, it's hard to, it's hard to like, see where things are that you should and it's hard for me now to to know like okay so i i have a job currently that i really kind of hate um which is i have a lot of jobs and most of them i love um <clears throat> but i teach adjunct a few classes through uh this uh, a prison system essentially it's i mean it's through a university that offers degrees to um people who are incarcerated and i think i think that's really good work um and i'm i'm really glad that it's happening right but i because of the way that i'm forced to interact with them um because of because of the lack of interaction i get to have with them and like they end up becoming and this is part partially a flaw in me um not just the system but they end up becoming just numbers to me numbers of things to grade and like i feel um i, I don't like the way that makes me feel i don't like the way yeah. that it makes me uh who who it's making me become to to think of these people whereas like i have other students i teach um at a university here and these are like, you know, nice 20 year old rich white kids. Right. But I care about them deeply because I see them every day and like, I yeah. know what's going on in their lives and I, I really want them to succeed. And I like, in theory, I want that for my incarcerated students too, but I just can't know them in, in a way that I'm able to generate that kind of compassion. Um, and I, so I don't like what that does to me, but that's so subtle. It's like, well, hey, I really like what this organization is doing. I'm glad that there are opportunities here for these folks to get degrees and to be able to, you know, make a better life for themselves when they uh, are released. And so that's good. I think it's good. It's good work. Um, but I don't like what it does to me. And that's that's a subtlety that I like. I've been wrestling for a long time with. Should yeah. I continue this work? Yeah. You know. Where, whereas there no way when I was 21, I could have even understood the subtleties of that. Um, yeah, just to, to go along with Joe's point, what I was going to share is that I used to do a ministry in prisons. Maybe you all heard it, Kairos. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I used to be a part of that. And of course, one of the things that we would hear people who were the residents where we would go is that one of the things they loved about the experience with us, because it was very, we, we dove in, we were really connected with the, with everybody who attended. We spent basically four days immersed in conversation, really vulnerable conversation and connection. And one of the things they would say is how good it felt to feel human again. Um, that experience of feeling like someone saw them as a human being. And so I get what you're saying, Joe, because that would be hard to feel like these people that I'm assuming, you know, 
at the heart of them, at their essence, these are, these are humans in need of compassion and encouragement. And you're not able to really give that because of the way the system is set up. Um, That would be a difficult position to be in. And maybe there's a way, maybe there's a way to offer that with a little more intentionality. I don't know. Yeah. I applied for a job one time in a prison and I look back now and I'm like, of course they didn't give me the job. Like on the, (laughs) on the resume or the, not the, on the application, you know, you're supposed to put why you want to, why you want this job. And it was a a counselor in uh, Mount Olive Correctional Center. Um, And I put something about how I just really believe in the, humanity of people and their ability to change (laughs) i look back now i'm like of course they took that and put it immediately in the shredder like you know this bitch is crazy (laughs) but they will destroy her (laughs) right Right. but but i really meant everything i said so you know I, i needed to let them know who i was and who i was did not fit with what they were looking for so I, I don't want this to be like too on the nose of um of our icebreaker question, but I I do think like we kind of landed last week's discussion in a place of sort of saying we had this agenda, like this thing that we were felt like we were trying to accomplish in the morning of our lives and the sort of structural whatever it was that we were building that comes down at some point in your for for me, it was, you know, somewhere in my mid to late twenties, it started to really come down. And then by the time I was 32 or 33, it was just flat on the ground, just a pile of, you know, lumber and, and building supplies. Um, and now we're all in a place where we're trying to have a conversation about what's the new agenda. I had this, you know, and, and all of these jobs that we talked about that weren't great for us were, previous life jobs like they were they were back yeah. in that sort of structural building season and now we're in a place where we look at it, things very different and joe you even mentioned something that you're doing now but you're doing it now with the lens of you know of an afternooner of somebody who's like able to that's is that what people mean whenever they talk about an afternooner <laughs> yeah, wrong kind exactly. of podcast again isn't it <laughs> um, I'm You're just, trying to steer us in another direction. I've been here, spending Drew. a lot of time with stand-up comedians lately. <laughs> like I'm trying to get to know some people in that part of the entertainment business, and I think they're having a bad impact on uh, the, <laughs> the way that I hear and and say things. I think it would be interesting for us to talk about, like, not just occupationally though, but like, what is it that's so different now, and what is the what's the new agenda? Maybe you could talk about it specifically. Like what you're trying to pursue now? Like, what do you know about yourself that you didn't know back then? What are you learning? Well, to me, that, that question, what do you know about you? Like, that's it. That's the new agenda for me. Um, Like, so my, my old agenda, my morning of life agenda, I feel like was, I am a I'm a good Christian. Like that was it. That was my, and I was, um, you know, Drew has a pretty similar experience to this, but I I was deep in the youth group culture of the nineties where like, and, and evangelical churches, like not the kind of church where you go on Sunday morning and it's like, um, you know, you, you do your church thing and then you've got the rest of your life. Like, no, this was everything. All of my friends, all of my social uh, identity, all of every everything was bound up in my Christianity, and I was I was a professional Christian. I mean, I, I studied theology and have become a theologian, and have also you know done a lot of work in churches and so forth. And like that's that's been my identity from day one, um, both as a like my my personhood and my social identity and my professional identity has been wrapped up in being a really good Christian and like that everything was about that and you know there are lots of things of course like you can't pinpoint a thing that leads to the afternoon of life but 
you know, for me, um, going through a pretty serious divorce and that was kind of like, that was not okay. That was not, that did not fit into that picture of what it meant to be a really good Christian. And then, um, having kind of a public, um, like having my faith kind of fall apart in public, like then it was really, really clear. I'm not a good Christian anymore <clears throat> in the way that I was supposed to be the way that I thought I was supposed to be. Uh, and what I partially, what I realized as a result of all that is, you know, what your, what your goals are in the morning of life or for me anyway, was largely projected and I don't mean that it was fake. I didn't feel fake. I felt like I was really doing these things. Um, but it's so much um, invested in what are other people's ideas about who I'm supposed to be and, you know, what what am I trying to prove to the world that it's hard to even know what what was real for me and what was just meeting expectations so now, I mean, I think what I spend my life doing, what I, the only thing that I really feel alive about is trying to figure out who I even am underneath the projections, mm -hmm. underneath all of the, all of the things that I put. And I think it's part of it is connected, right? I'm, I find that, that part of what I projected to the world was the real me, um, and part of it wasn't. And I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really like that phrase, the real me. I, I think the Buddhists will tell you that whatever you're putting forward in the world right now is the real you. It's where you are at this moment. Um, so like even those projections were me. That was the that was morning of life me. But that me was so guided by um, everybody else's understanding or at least my assumption about what everybody else thought I should be. Yeah. Right. And and now like the new agenda, if you will, for me is like, who am I? Yeah, that's the <clears throat> that's really good. I I appreciate the um the sort of uh I don't know, there's there's a strange process that I feel like we get at some point we'll just stop referencing that this is ground that Joe and I have covered before, but yeah, <laughs> this, this, let this be the last time, just so you know, Joe. Okay. If I say something that you and I have said before on another podcast or in another conversation, I know that I'm just not going to acknowledge it anymore after this moment. Okay, deal. <laughs> um, but I feel like we have these moments in life where we turn over a new leaf, you know, cross over something. And then we look back and we don't think, oh, I'm different now. Oh, I see things different now. We have what what really happens is we think, oh, this is who I was all along. This is what I was thinking all along. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this is the the real me, as it were, uh, in, in what you were just saying. And that's that's very much where I'm at with my sort of new agenda. My new approach to life is I feel like I'm tapping into something where I'm saying, here's the through line of everything I ever liked about the work that I did with my life and the, the ways that I spent my days. Here's the thing I always was. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if that's who, I, uh, but I've, I've landed at this place where I was like, I think I might've always been an entertainer in some ways. I think even as a preacher, even as a, you know, a youth pastor, even as a school teacher for a brief stint, like I was always in this place of like, I want to make people laugh and make people think and make people dance, like, you know, make people feel like I always had this sort of artistic um, entertainer through line. Um, for a while I wanted to write things and I would take very, I would take great pains to write things as well as I possibly could to get people to sort of think and laugh and whatever. For a while it's, it's been music for the past, you know, five years or so. It's been my primary source of income and the main thing that I do with my life. And sometimes it 
for for a while there, it felt like, oh, I'm good at this. I can get paid for this. I can get paid better for this than anything else I do. Um, and then it starts, you know, I, you have moments out there where you're like, well, that was real tonight. That wasn't a paycheck. That was like, I created a space for people to celebrate something that they wanted to celebrate. Like that yeah. felt, and, and now, so I don't know if that makes any sense, but I feel like part of afternoon life for me has been hitting a point where I'm looking back and saying, oh, here's the stuff that was true about me all along. Like there were some structural yeah. things and there were some people that, that like came into my life and tried to like, um, speak into it and try to say like, here's what you're here for. And I listened to some of them, you know what I mean? Like some, some people told me you should be a preacher and I don't think they were wrong. I think I was a good prophetic preacher for a while. Um, I don't think I ever fit super well into the evangelical Christian box that I happened to be raised in and that I was sort of employed by for a while. I, I think there were always some things in my head that made me a, a poor fit for that. Um, but I think what people saw in me early and what sort of guided even the early occupational element of my life is the same things that are there now. And part of thinking that way is inevitable. It doesn't really matter if it's true or not that part of it is sort of inevitable that you'd get to a point and you're like, I'm still me. I still feel like the same person I was when I was 13. Like yeah. I can see the things that are true of me now that were true of me then too. Uh, I'm just had a pretty sweet bowl cut at 13. So I feel I like that's, know. that's sort of essential. <laughs> What happened to those days? So, yeah, that really brought up for me, Drew, just a couple of days ago, I saw a quote that I'm sure you all have seen many times yourself that says, life is not about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And mm. when I read that, I'm like, that's not true to me. <laughs> like, life is about finding, finding myself. Um, it is about really going back to who I am at my core, my essence. Um, and you know, I think I've heard it called our soul print or our um, I've heard other people call it our soul signature, uh, who we are at our essence that doesn't look like anybody else. It's our own unique expression of divine is the way I see it. And so for me, in the morning of our lives, um, you all have talked about how you were taught that the agenda is to please God. I probably didn't have as much of that in my experience. I grew up Episcopalian. Uh, there was a lot less guilt involved in my experience, um, but it was about being good. My agenda was yeah. to be good. Yeah. And and then, you know, people that weren't raised in a church, oftentimes their agenda was in, in our culture is about being successful or being safe and secure. I think those are kind of the three main things. Be good, be safe and secure, be successful, and, and you're on your path. Those are really gendered too, don't you think? I mean, I find that for so many women, I hear them saying some version of that. I, I was supposed to be good. And yeah. I don't hear a lot of men saying that. Mm. Right. I mean, it, the fact that you all had a desire to please God, that's a version of being good. Sure. But there is, yeah. there is an, another level with, I think, a lot of girls and women to be a good girl um mm -hmm. to do what you're supposed to do and and take care of others and um and so one of the things that happened for me in that period of the morning of my life is as I was moving towards the afternoon is realizing that I didn't want to have kids mm -hmm. and that really did not fit into the to the mold of what it meant to be a good girl um, mm -hmm. so that was really confusing to me at first, but what, what I ultimately came to is that as I moved into the afternoon of my life, mm -hmm. the agenda becomes about being true, which is what you all are saying, right? It's about being true to your own soul print, to your own, own soul signature. And that's not what, for me, my journey was not about having my own children. It was about going out into the world and offering that love in a more, in a more um, expansive way rather than distilling a lot of love into a child, which is meaningful and a beautiful thing, but that was not my path. I'm, I'm curious about your experience of that 
the quote that you brought up about, you know, for you, it's about discovering your true self, not about making. Um, <clears throat> and that's interesting. I, f- I find that there's some co-creativity that it feels like that to me, that there's some, mm-hmm. um, you know, there is something true and like a bit about what drew was saying about like, um, I'm, I'm discovering things all along that were, that have been there, you know, that soul print that has left its imprint on everything I've ever done and everything I've ever been, uh, and just didn't notice it. Right. I didn't notice what it was that I was really after there. And, and I'm beginning to pay attention. But there does also feel like some, um, active element of that, that it's not just to, to me, that it's not just a passive discovery, but I'm actually, um, have some, uh, I don't know, some control of my destiny and who I'm becoming. I think for me, what it is, it's it's about discovering who I truly am and then being willing to step into that. So, yeah, there is you have to consent to engaging with who you really are instead of just following someone else's path or the world's path of who you're meant to be or supposed to be. So. So, yeah, absolutely. I do believe in that concept of co-creation, but I don't feel like in my experience, it's not about sitting down and thinking about who do I want to be like, who, you know, what, what fits my agenda for, for what I want to be in the world. It's, it's really getting somewhere deeper and saying what's already in me that wants to be expressed and how can I step into that more deeply? Well, this That's- is really rich. Yeah. To, to consider, cause I'm hearing like, uh, I don't know the more wh- whichever one I think more about is the one that seems right to me at the moment. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I probably would lean in the direction of uh, Megan's initial um, statement here to sort of say like I I I feel like for me this has been more more heavily a path of discovering who I actually am than becoming something new. Like that's part of. That's part of the frustration I, I experienced in like a real, you know, when I experienced kind of what what felt like to me and what appeared to pe- the people that cared about me the most to be a crisis in my faith. Um, whenever I started sort of publicly talking about not believing in hell in the way that I was taught to believe in it or, you know, various things that all seem like such small potatoes to me now, uh, but were really big deals whenever I, I brought them up. Mm-hmm. There was a part of me that felt so like that 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 would fr- that frustrated, upset people. There's a part of me that felt really deeply at a soul level injured by people being upset by that. Like there was a part of me that whenever I first told this stuff to my wife where she got concerned and she was like, what does that mean for us? You know, that I, you know, that I, I wasn't sure how I felt about certain tenets of evangelicalism or whatever they were. I I can't even so many, so much of it. Like it's just not even in my brain anymore. Like what was that? stuff? I can't remember why it felt so big, but I would tell her and she's like, what does that mean for us? And I can remember being really hurt by like, what do you mean? What does it mean for us? I've been this all along. Like that's, that was the feeling. Like I'm just telling you, I now have some verbiage and better insight into the tension I was always experiencing here. Um, This was always me. But to people on the outside looking in, they're like, why are you changing? Why are you creating this Mm -hmm. new version of yourself? Why are you like, I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. Which one is it? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, if I hadn't read the books, if I hadn't done the Google searches, if I hadn't listened to the podcasts I had, would I have had the same revelations and change? Like, no, I mean, I guess I did have some autonomy here. Like I did actually engage in the process of my change and my, but who you can't avoid that. <laughs> like that, that just happened and it awakened the things that were in me. It didn't, I guess my, my perspective is that it didn't plant new things in me. It, like if I read something that doesn't seem true to me at all, well then it's like, all right, well, I don't, that doesn't seem true to me. But if I read something and it rings with something inside of me, then that means it was dormant inside of me and this awakened it. Um, yeah, 
That's good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of an awakening or an uncovering for me. I mean, that's been my journey and it has been creating something out of nothing. I mean, it, it's a little bit like, and I don't, I, I don't say this to in any way compare my experience or our experience to other people's experience of different things. Um, it's just a helpful, cause this is a thing that people understand is like when trans folks say kind of feel that same way that you're describing Drew, it's like, I no, I'm not changing. And then, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents are saying like, well, why aren't you the person that, you know, that we, <clears throat> that we made and that we raised and well, I've never been that person and I'm just owning who I've always been. Uh, and so when you are rejecting that, you're also rejecting the person that I've always been. You just didn't realize it. Right. And I didn't realize it. Um, that's yeah. Yeah. That's pretty, and uh, I, I totally get what you're saying. Cause there's like, again, no comparison to that, but that's why we have empathy for that. That's why I feel like even as an evangelical, I would look at that and hear the way that typically, yeah, at least politically, um, evangelical Christians would talk about trans or any LGBTQ spectrum issues as though they are that, as though they are this sort of decision that was made that is to rebel against God and God's way. I think there was probably something in me that's like, well, that's not how I arrived at discovering who I really am. <laughs> I wasn't trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I wasn't trying to upset God. I was trying to do the opposite. I was always trying to please God. I was always trying to make my wife feel secure and safe and loved and like make my family feel like I appreciated what they gave me. And like, I was always trying to do that yet. I still was in tension with these things. And I'm just telling you about it now. <laughs> like there, there's an empathy that, I, I don't know that I feel like I have had for anybody coming out later in life um, with any kind of thing that feels like, oh, what a plot twist that changes everything from all from the start. It's like, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, maybe for you, maybe from your perspective, but from their perspective, they're just saying this was what was true all along. I'm mm -hmm. still me. Well, and that brings up for me, I've, spent a lot of time really reflecting on what what does the word love mean what does that mean and in recent months and, and the definition changes a little bit from time to time but in recent months what I've come up with is that love is wanting what is most true for someone else and so that that might not be other people's idea of what love is, but that's absolutely what it is to me. So if I love you, I want you to be who you are. I want mm -hmm. you to express yourself um, in ex exactly the way that you feel inside of yourself. So, so when it comes to trans people or the queer community in general, or whoever it might be, someone who's who doesn't have any spiritual practice at all, that that's their expression of who they are. I want you to be who you are. And I want, I want that in return. That's how I feel loved is when someone wants me to be free, to be who I am. And that's the only way love can be unconditional, right? Is like for you to feel like you can say, this is, yeah, I don't know. I, I love the way you put that. It's just kind of really loving someone is to want them to experience peace. It's to want them to be at peace with who they are, with, mm -hmm. with the universe and people, God and man, if that's your language, like that's the, I have that tattooed on me. I thought it was, it was a really stupid idea for a tattoo, but I, did get, <laughs> I think it's from Peter. I don't know. I can't read it. It's back here. I can't even read what it, but it was like. It was something Peter said uh, in his epistle in the new Testament. That was something to the effect of uh, be found at peace. It's like, like, what's the initiative <laughs> of life? What's the, what's the end game? And I was so obsessed with like, what happens when you die and all of that at yeah, the time that yeah. I got it. I don't, I'm not that obsessed with that anymore, but at the time it seemed like a really big deal to be like, oh, well, what's my goal to be found at peace? Like to just. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great quote that I love. Uh, that kind of. I think you're cutting out part. again. Are you? Uh... Oh. No, I was. I was just. I'm kidding, Megan. Oh. <laughs> that name. What was the name oh. again? <laughs> oh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. yeah. There's some. There's definitely a connection issue. <laughs> Is there really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you trying to take this podcast on another <laughs> on another path again, Drew? Is that what we're doing here? No, I just think that name <laughs> sounds like a connection issue. Uh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, for those of you who don't know who that is, that's he's a he was a Buddhist mindfulness teacher, and he has a quote that says, "Love in such a way that the person you love feels free." And that's one of my favorite quotes. Yeah. There's a, so maybe, maybe you could put that, you could tattoo that on your back next trip. Yeah. I'm going to see if they could, uh, see if they could change that. Well, just put them stuff. side by side, right? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> my next tattoo is definitely going to be the Lord's supper on my belly though, with Jesus's <laughs> mouth as my belly button. <laughs> I think that's the kind of thing that I could just tell people I have that, that I just feel like I could see it. I could see everyone nodding and saying, yeah, you do, don't you? It just, <laughs> just feels very true to who I am. Hi, this is Anne in Charleston, West Virginia. Thank you for listening to Good Afternoon, an invitation to the contemplative life. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share this episode with a friend or on social media. I made it through the morning before I fell apart without warning. I took a deep breath to collect myself. I'll have a good afternoon.